Hi, this is Ibarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. First off, I just want to thank the many of you who've taken the time to write me or send recorded messages regarding the episodes, uh, the episode Lesson Learned, which aired a couple of weeks ago. I've really appreciated the many thoughts and insights that people shared with me regarding that episode. I don't do that kind of show very often, but it's always really good to hear that it's resonated with a lot of people. So, so thank you for that. And if you're still interested in sending a recorded message for me, which I could potentially use in a future show, please, please do so. And just record an MP3 and you can email that to info at thecandidframe.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. Now, as a result of the work that I do, I get to discover a lot of photographers, and there's no shortage of photographers out there who have blogs. But today's guest, Kirk Tuck, is one of the few photographers whose site I go to on a regular basis. The insight he gives into photography, the photography business, and just his whole journey as a photographer has been real valuable to me, and I've learned so much from from the writing that he's he's put up on his on his blog site. And I know a lot of people uh, share that view because he has a lot of people who go to his site on on a daily basis. So he's been on my radar for a while, and I finally got around to asking him to appear on the show. And though I expected the conversation to be more a discussion about his photography. It seemed to just revolve primarily about different aspects about the business of photography. And I realized that we don't talk about that a lot, not just on the show, but in, but in general. There's a lot of talk about cameras and, and cr- the creative process. But whether you're an established photographer or whether you're someone who's thinking about making the leap into a professional photographic career, there are certain topics that aren't discussed enough. And I think today's episode provides us an opportunity to make up for that oversight. And I think that even if you're not seeing yourself as a professional photographer, I think that some of the insights that you'll hear during this conversation will be helpful to you, regardless of what you do. But I hope, as usual, that it's something that's entertaining and that you take away something from it that that helps you, regardless of what your journey is. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Kirk Tuck. This episode of The Candor Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. Now, Squarespace has been kind enough to support the show for the last several months, and I had been meaning to create a website with with their service because, to be quite frank, I haven't had a website for a couple of years. I've had the blog, but not a website. I had used another service at one point, but when they had made some changes, I was completely dissatisfied with it. And so I, I let that go, and I kept meaning to use WordPress or something like that in order to create the website. But the truth of it was, I just did not have the time to learn a whole new software or interface and to be able to get that stuff up online. So when I had the opportunity to use Squarespace, I felt like, well, here's a perfect time for me to do it. And I've finally done it, and I have a site up for you guys to check out. And And I have to tell you, it really was an easy experience. Within half a day, I had images up on the site. And and the big reason for that is just it's because it's so fast and easy. These templates, they were 100% drag and drop. So all I had to do was drag over my images and they have this layout engine and it allowed me to customize these blocks of content, whether they were photos or text or social media contact, uh, contact, all within this real easy to use layout. And it was just really fun to do and I was really excited about it. And the best thing about it is these these designs, these templates are so well designed. They're so clean, they're so simple. I was able to choose a template that really just showcased my photographs. And I'd like you to try it and see whether or not this works for you. One of the things that I want to do is I, I not, not only want to just put up a site of my photographs, but I want to share about my own process in terms of putting up a site. So that's what I'm going to be doing. I've attached a blog to that that new website, and I'll be writing about not only the process about using the Squarespace interface to upload, but I'm going to talk about this whole journey I am going through right now in terms of editing my images and trying to find a selection of images that really represents who I am as a photographer today. And so I'll be posting regularly on that blog, as well as creating YouTube videos where I discuss how I use Lightroom in order to get to that point. So hopefully that will be helpful to you. 
even even if you don't use Squarespace, but if you, but if you do want to try it out, go ahead and try the free trial. Just go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame. Sign up for the free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your website today. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code CANDIDFRAME3 and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME3. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. Well, Kirk, welcome to The Candid Frame. I've been a longtime reader of your blog, so uh, I'm glad that we have a chance to finally sit down and, and, and talk with each other. Well, thanks. I think this is going to be really fun. Uh, I'm thrilled to hear that somebody out there is reading my blog. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in researching you, I see that you, your photographic career has had several iterations. You know, you started in photography, you know, around college or soon after college. And then you had a, a time at an advertising agency. And then you, after that, you became a, a commercial f- photographer. But why do you think throughout that period that photography was such a point of interest for you that you felt like this is something that I, I really want to, I really want to do? What was it about it that held so much appeal for you? You know, I, I think that growing up, I grew up in a household that really didn't value aesthetics at all. My parents were very into functional stuff. We didn't have a lot of art on the walls. Um, the furniture was just functional. And uh, they were really, what is the math side of the brain? The left side of the brain? They're really left side of the brain people. Um, when I graduated from high school, I went into the University of Texas to become an electrical engineer which is, again, that real left brain thing. And when I picked up a camera, it was like, bam, this is right brain. Hmm. And I had always presumed that, you know, hereditarily I was a left brain person, but it was just so cool to deal with something that wasn't linear, that didn't have, you know, hard rules and parameters that you would have to follow. And it was a way of expressing myself that was so different from both my upbringing and my engineering education, that it just felt wonderful. It felt very freeing. Yeah. I guess that's the way to say it. Well, early on, you were, you were an instructor. Um, you were teaching photography to students before you, even before you did the advertising gig. Right. What, what role did that play in your development as a photographer, the fact that you, had, that you were teaching people fairly early on in your career? Yeah. But you know, it's really interesting for me. I had a friend over in the fine arts college at UT, a guy named Tomas Pantine, and he asked me to be his TA. Now, Tomas was a mechanical engineer who became a photographer. And he had been very successful, worked for Texas Monthly and a lot of the big oil companies in Texas in the late 70s, early 80s. And I really had no formal training or formal background in photography. I'd taken a number of courses like um, American Studies courses that involved the history of photography. And I took a couple of courses that um, were all about the history of photography through the HRC, which is the, I guess, the second biggest collection of photography in the, in the Western world. And when I did Tomas's class as a TA, my responsibility was to teach the kids how to use 8x10 view cameras, 4x5 view cameras, and studio lighting. And so, of course, I had to learn all that stuff. (laughs) And Tomas gave me a crash course early on, uh, but then I applied myself. I went over to the Fine Arts Library, and I sat on the floor every evening for probably a month. And I read every modern photography, popular photography, you name it, magazine, going back to the 40s. And I would go into the studio at 1 or 2 in the morning and try stuff out. So it was kind of like this iterative thing. Mm. When Tomas left, there were two more photographers, a guy from Brooks and another guy who was an English, had gotten his master's in English at UT. And they were both great commercial photographers. And I became their TA for uh, a couple of semesters. And then uh, one of the fine arts instructors um, had to take a medical leave. Uh, at the beginning of a semester, and the, the chairman of the department said, uh, who can I throw in here to teach this course? And everybody turned around and said, well, Tuck doesn't have anything interesting to do. <laughs> you know, See if he can handle it. It's just fine arts. I mean, all he's got to do is, is walk around with a Leica and develop tri uh, He ought to be able to handle that. 
and I took over the class and I started teaching the fine arts students control, like how to use a studio strobe or how to use movements on a view camera. And the curriculum up till then had been all about just going out and seeing things and shooting them with your 35 millimeter camera. And most of the students were enraptured to know that there was something beyond that, which also fell into the realm of fine arts. Mm. And so they kept me around for a while. That's funny. There's, there's, there's no better incentive than the fact that you got to stand in front of a bunch of people and act and as if you know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it reminds me of the first time somebody hired me to shoot architecture. You know, I'd always shot people. I always loved to shoot people and mostly in the studio. And one of the people at Texas Monthly recommended me to a little magazine up in Pennsylvania called Early American Life Magazine. And they go around and shoot antiquities, basically, across the United States. Old plantation homes and old northeastern colonial homes and all the artifacts. And they called me up and said, well, we would like to hire you uh, to go to Louisiana and shoot in these old plantations. And, of course, it'll all be four by five. And, you know, we'll be shooting sheet film and we'll send the art director down to you. And I'd never owned a 4x5. I've, I've taught students before how to do the stuff in the studio. But I went on and grabbed a Calumet catalog and ordered their basic 4x5 camera and three lenses and showed up at the airport. And, you know, I had a book on large format photography in one hand and, you know, a handshake in the other. And we went out and shot for two weeks. So crash courses are an interesting way to learn new stuff. Well, when it comes to photography, like you just described, you can always sort of pick up a book to figure out some sort of technical thing, be it oh, lighting yeah. or, or the correct lens to use. But when you started working in the advertising agency and you're working with photographers, what were you learning there that you don't think you could have easily found in a book? Oh, wow. You know, the interesting thing is that you've got so many little roadmaps in books but none of it deals with what's the concept? What's the creative idea? What is it that differentiates this from those roadmaps? So I would work with different photographers and we got to the point where if something needed to feel modern, that was one guy's deal. If something needed to feel traditional, that was somebody else's deal. And you couldn't really put into words what was different about their sensibilities. But you could see that they had different ways of solving that visual problem. And so I started getting attuned to the idea that these guys had done this long enough that they found a groove that was comfortable for them. And that's kind of what we call style. Mm -hmm. So when they hit their groove, there are going to be X number of people in the market who love their style and an equal number of people who can't stand their style. But it does differentiate them from everybody else and it gives them a voice and really that's kind of what we want as photographers is our own voice so what i think i just heard is that you you explain style as being derived from the way a photographer has provided a solution to problems pretty much and it's the way that no matter what the parameters are they pull out something that looks like everything else they've shot in other words, they could be asked to do a portrait one day and a still life the next day, but there's some sort of visual continuity that flows through that that makes it their work. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah that, that, that does. So, so tell me about, you know, you're looking at that time, you were looking at a job that had a particular challenge or problem with it, and you would have several different photographers that you'd be considering. Right. So a lot of them would probably have sort of comparable pedigrees. They all seem to be quite capable of providing a solution to it. So when you were looking at those, say, final two or three photographers, what would be the determining factor for you to choose one photographer over another? I always looked at it in two ways. One of them is definitely from a business point of view. If everybody can master the job and do the job equally well, I'm looking for that one little stylistic thing that makes them more of the moment for advertising than everybody else. You know, that's kind of hard to define. But the much more important thing is, is this somebody you want to put in front of a client and share a couple days with? 
And I think that's something that's missing from the marketing equation right now is mm -hmm. everybody thinks, oh, well, if your work is good, then you get work. But the reality is that if you're kind of a weenie to work with, if everything's a problem, if everything's a challenge, you know, if you don't play well with other people, I don't really want to hire you because I'm going to be spending eight, ten hours a day with you. So I'm looking for people who have the chops to do it right, but also have a personality that makes you think, wow, that was a short photo shoot. I wish we could do that again. Instead of, oh dear God, how did we slog through that? <laughs> so, you know, part of it is if you've got three people who can do the job equally well, who do you want to spend time with? Yeah. And who's going to bring collaborative ideas back in? You know, if you're working on something in the advertising sphere, you know, it's really great to hire a superstar, but the agency wants a little voice too. And so is that person a collaborator or are they going to fight you every step of the way? So how did that, that knowledge and that awareness impact the way you would try to get a, a gig? Because I know uh, I, I hear that <laughs> when, when you actually have the gig about creating that sort of dynamic between the client and, you know, the art director and creating a space where people are very excited. But when you're, when you're actually like bidding and competing with a bunch of other photographers who you, who, who you may or may not know, right? how do you sort of get across or how did you and do get across that idea that, hey, not only am I capable of providing a solution to the problem that you have, not only am I able to produce the stuff on deadline and give you a quality product, but you really are going to enjoy working with me. Sometimes, you know, yeah. you don't always have that because so much happens via email and there's no direct yeah. content. So how do you sort of, if that's an edge that you have, how do you utilize it? So that you well, I'll, I'll let you in on the biggest dirty secret of photography, of professional commercial photography, the good writers get the work, mm. not necessarily the good photographers. Most of us, if we're working at a certain level, are going to be able to turn out a product that's pretty good. And visually, I think art directors can look at it. And if you're in the running for the job, then your chops or your ability to do stuff in terms of the photograph are acknowledged, right? I mean, they're not going to ask you to bid if you're not in the same ballpark as the other people you're bidding against. So what it comes down to is who can create the most alluring narrative about the job that you're talking about. So when you write up your proposal, you basically, you're laying out a story for them about how this is going to evolve, how we're going to do this. Step by step, I'm going to walk you through the process hey, we're going to need an RV because people are going to have to change and we're on city streets and here's why and here's a funny anecdote about that and then we move on. But it's your ability to write that in a way that really connects with that client and assures them that, you know, you're the guy. If everything's terse, one-line, automated form, they get no resonance out of that. You know, really, if you're any bit at all a decent writer, you're going to have an advantage over people who are just doing the robotic form filler. You know, you've got a lot of people who go to the Wonderful Machine site verbatim template and they fill in the blanks. And that doesn't give clients any sort of feel for who you are or what your sense of humor is or anything else. But if you can craft a narrative around your proposal, then you've created a story. If you make that story appealing enough, um, that's an advantage that you have over people who are just filling in the blanks. Does that make sense? No, no, that makes perfect make, makes perfect sense. Yeah. So when you when you left the advertising agency and you started going out there and building up the business, did you have like a complete sort of program, like a, a marketing plan, and a sort <laughs> of, or did you just kind of just go in and just dive in and say, okay, I got to sink or swim here? Well, there are a couple things that I know. One of them that's interesting is that. We closed our ad agency pretty much at the beginning of a big bust here in Central Texas in 1988. But we all walked away with some money. So I had enough cash on hand to get through the first year. And I knew two things, really. One was that ad agencies inherently are flaky. It's different now because everything's a big holding company. But in the old days, they were flaky. They didn't pay their bills on time. They would do anything to keep a client, even if it meant walking all over the supplier, which meant us, we mm -hmm. poor artists. So 
I knew that the guys who really wrote the checks were corporations. And we were sitting in the middle of a market that had IBM, Motorola, um, Texas Instruments, some Hewlett Packard, a little bit of Apple, and a bunch of software companies. I could go and find the little ad agencies that were scrimping and saving and trying to get work from these guys and compete with 50 other photographers for whatever work the agencies had. Or I could go directly to the corporations and start to integrate myself into their marketing departments. And having run an ad agency, I thought that was a much better course than going to the agencies and waiting for them to throw me a bone. And also, our agency was fairly successful in Austin, so a lot of the people that I would go out and need to um, pitch to had been competitors who were not at all anxious to have me come in and meet with their clients because in the back of their mind was the idea that, well, he may get tired of being a photographer and go back into the agency business. Mm -hmm. How much entree do I want to give him to my roster of clients? So I made a conscious effort to not really court ad agencies at all locally, but to go after corporate clients because it was my understanding, and I think it played out that way, that they control the money. Um, in a large extent, they control the creative as well. And most photographers think creative comes fully born out of the head of Zeus at the ad agency and that the clients just along for the ride, but I knew that the clients, in many cases, are dictatorial about some of the creative. Yeah. You can be on their team, or you can be on the ad agency's team. But I got to tell you, there's some accounts like Motorola where we went through 10, 12 ad agencies over a 20-year spate, but I kept working for the same group of people within the company. Oh, wow. Interesting. So that was really cool. Dell Computer is another one. We've been working for Dell Computer now for oh, 22 years or so, and we, we work directly to photograph all their key executives and that sort of thing, but, I mean, they pick up the phone, they call, they pay with a credit card, boom, boom, boom. If I did the same work through one of their agencies, one of the larger agencies, it would take much longer to get paid. The agency would negotiate a lower rate for my services because they would want to keep more of the money for themselves. Um, so it was a lose-lose. So that was my only real plan was go out and find the corporations. Yeah. When you were reaching out to them, how did you know who to access? And how did you get access to them? Did, did it come as a result of your experience in the advertising agency? Did you just sort of say, do I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody? Was it just the, the letter writing that you used to connect with them? What, what was the technique you used to actually reach these people and be able to convince them to bring you on? Well, you know, I know younger uh, listeners are not going to believe this for a second, but we didn't have email. We didn't have anything electronic. Uh, the only way you reach clients was through direct mail or the telephone. I mean, you could do advertising. You could run a, a really cool picture in a magazine. People might say, oh, wow, that's really cool but it didn't generate phone calls or anything like that. So you really had to work the phones and you really had to figure out your own mailing list and get into the guts of a corporation. But here's the deal. Corporations need you as a photographer or a writer as much as you need them. If they don't have compelling photographs to sell their products and sell their people, you know, they're kind of dead in the water. So they're looking for the best people to fill those slots as well. And I think that a lot of photographers who haven't come up through ad agencies, who've just come out of school and gone into photography, um, don't understand how corporations work. But I had just spent the last eight years butting heads with Marcom departments and butting heads with PR departments. And within every major corporation, you've got the people who interface with advertising, you've got internal advertising, you have business-to-business -business stuff. And then you have product managers within the little silos who are responsible just for a specific product. And then you have the public relations people. Mm -hmm. So in any major corporation, you've got three or four departments that you can market to. And to start the ball rolling, you just pick up the phone and find out who, who's in a Marcom department. And you arrange to go show your portfolio, at least we did back then. And if they like you, if it turned out well, They'd give you a job. If that turned out well, they'd give you a recommendation to the people around them. 
And it was like dropping a pebble in a pond every successive ring you got to market to. At one point, we were doing marketing for 28 different people at Motorola. So, shooting photographs for 28 different departments, basically, in one company. And that's much better than having one contact in one ad agency that may get fired from the account at the end of the year, and then you start all over again. Yeah. You know, because you've got some continuity there. And, you know, if you look just through our last uh, economic recession, the ad agencies got kicked around, beaten up, you know, their budgets got slashed, uh, all that kind of stuff. But the corporations are now all sitting on huge piles of money. Who are you going to tie your wagon to? Yeah. And then I have, I have friends that I, you know, shared a large studio with who specialized in editorial. And, oh, my God, I watched that just crumble. So... You know, I, I, while my choice was probably more conservative than everybody else's because corporations are perhaps less um, willing to do crazy stuff, from a financial point of view, it was a much safer way to go. Here's, here's one of the, I think, one of the more critical considerations that I don't often see talked about. And that's a clear understanding between the photographer and the client in terms of what's being delivered, what the terms are. And I think a lot of people especially the students that I, I teach sometimes are of this thought that the client is going to spit off everything and oh. all they have to do is just sign a paper and do the work and then they get a check. And, <laughs> and the reality is, is that that has to be a dialogue between the photographer and the client that has to be yeah. uh, sort of a going back and forth between, no, this is acceptable. This is not acceptable uh, this, this whole negotiation thing that has to go on before anything starts to happen. And I, I'm hoping you could sort of speak to that because it's an under-discussed topic that I think is really, really important. Uh, I think you're right on the money with that. You know, I think most people who gravitate to photography kind of grow up in a middle-class existence and they don't really talk about money when they're growing up. I mean, their parents have jobs and they have salaries and, and they go to work, but, you know, they don't really talk about money very much. I know in my family we never did. And when I was at the ad agency, of course, I was on the creative side, and we had a business manager who took care of a lot of the other stuff, like you know, making sure the bids were out and contracts were signed and whatnot. But photographers leave so much money on the table because they come from this place either of fear or ignorance about the money. I just talked to a guy a couple of days ago, and he was beside himself. Nobody would return his phone call at a client office. And I tried to talk him off a cliff, and I said, so what was your agreement with them? And he said, well, you know, we didn't really discuss it. I told him it would be around this much money and blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, well, from now on, you have to tell them exactly how much it's going to cost, exactly what rights they're going to get, how you're going to deliver it, and when you expect to get paid. Oh, I could never tell them that. They'll never work with me again. And I was like, okay, look, this is how... Everyone in the business world operates except photographers. If, <laughs> if you go, if my client is having a convention and they're going to go to a convention hotel, they sit down with the convention hotel and say, okay, so how much per room? And the convention hotel says, 225. And I say, could you go 200? Well, I don't know. How many rooms are you going to guarantee? You know, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. At the end of the day, they sign contracts and the contracts clearly define everything that's going to happen. We might be working at the same convention as photographers. Why would we expect that the client would think anything different of us? Why shouldn't we have that contract? Why shouldn't we have that discussion about what we're going to deliver? And if there's some back and forth, you know, maybe we ask for different stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's got to be clearly defined. Yeah, that was one of the biggest lessons that I, I learned is like when someone asks for something to be less expensive... I go, yes, I can do this for you, but this is what you give up. Right. Not, oh, okay, I'll do it for that much. Right. <laughs> well, a client may have in mind that you're going to be there for 10 hours a day, and you might quote a fee for an event of 2500 bucks for the day. And they might say, well, that's too much money. Well, great. We'll fix it at six hours, and we'll do it for 18, you know, mm -hmm. and these expenses. 
And the client can say, well, no, I, I really need you there the whole time. Okay, well, it's going to be 25. Uh, you know, you go back and forth and back and forth, but you have to stick to your guns and you have to know what it costs you to be in business. Yeah. That's a great point because I think most photographers don't know how much it costs them to stay in business. Oh, yeah. Well, you've got to figure out, you know, you're not going to be able to, to bill every day in the calendar. You know, logically, you're going to bill between, if you run your business well, between 60 and 100 days of shooting. So out of those 60 to 100 days, how much do you have to make in profit each day in order to hit the, the nut that you want for the year? You know, and, and that's simple math. You sit down with a calculator. It's, you know, 100 divided by however much you want to make or need to make. But what I stress to people who want to be photographers and have this kind of money issue is, look, this is a profession that requires that you invest in equipment. You requ it in, it re requires you to invest in education. You're going to develop a point of view, and that has value. You're going to develop chops, and that has value. And so shouldn't you be able to make as much as a mid-level administrator? I'm not talking doctor or lawyer, but a mid-level administrator. So maybe they're making $60,000 in a year, but they're also getting health care. They're also getting a pension. They're also getting their office space given to them and their telephone. So when you compare, if you just want to make that average middle income, you have to add all those things together and then do your division. Because don't you deserve to also have health insurance? And don't you deserve to have, you know, a pension when you finish? All these things. It's not that somebody's paying us $1,000 for one day or $2,000 for one day and la la, that's more than a guy who goes in and works on salary. It's the accumulation of these things that make a difference, both in your career and the guy's career. Yeah. And you've got to cover those costs. And the sad thing is that everybody comes right out of school and they're really hungry and they're anxious to get their career started. So they develop a lot of bad habits. And then when they hit their 50s, like me, they're going like, whoa, I, I have to put my kid through college? How am I going to find the money to do that? So I think what young kids don't really understand is that they're not running a sprint, they're running a marathon, and eventually they're going to want all the things that all their other middle-class friends have. And those are things like putting your kid through college, paying off your house, being able to put money away for retirement, things like that. If they don't start those habits early and they don't do their business in such a way that it supports that, they basically shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, and there's no turning back. I mean, once you hit your 50s and you go, oh, crap, this isn't working, mm -hmm. there's really no way to turn it back and go, okay, well, let's change gears right now in my 50s and I'll tell all those clients that I was wrong and I need to double my rates or that I need to ask for specific usage li uh, licenses instead of, you know, here you can have everything. So part of it's a learning curve. So what do you say to people who are not in their 20s, they're in their 30s and their 40s, and either because of, you know, the downturn, they've lost their job and they're, they they want to make a career change into photography, or they're just, or they want to, they're in a good position, in a, but they're not really satisfied. So what do you recommend to them outside of, you know, becoming proficient in terms of the craft, in terms of making this a viable thing so they can do this, but still be able to exist comfortably when they're in their 60s and, and later? Well, you know, it goes back to what we've been talking about, which is I think you can learn the craft pretty much anywhere. And everybody learns it differently because everybody has a different style. But you have to learn the business of it. Whether you go to a community college and sit down and take business courses, business law, accounting, finance, uh, those sorts of things, you need to have a, a good understanding of marketing for yourself, of advertising for yourself in the, in the industry in general. You need to understand how corporations work. You need to understand how your accounting works. And you need to understand the power of compound interest and how to save and how to plan. And those are things that are generic. I mean, they're with every business. If you want to open a frozen yogurt business, you go through the same thing. How do I find my customers? How do I communicate with them? How do I make a profit on each product? How do I save part of that profit? You know, it's basic fundamentals of business. And 
I meet so many photographers who are very hopeful. And if somebody came to me and said, well, look, I, I just lost my job at TI. Uh, I've always wanted to be a photographer. I have a really cool camera and some lenses. Uh, I took a lighting workshop. I, I think I want to go out and try it as a job. You know, I would send them to buy, you know, the, the good books on business of photography. I'm, I'm trying to remember the fellow in Washington, D.C. who writes a great um, book on that. But essentially, to get the nuts and bolts down, how do you greet a client? How do you find a client? How do you keep a client? You know, do you have paperwork? Do you have contracts? Those things are so much more vital to the business of photography than whether or not you can take a good picture. Most of us can take a really great picture. The difference is some of us are better at finding the clients, convincing them to pay us, and getting a contract that kind of enforces that they'll pay us. Mm-hmm. So when you fail, it's not because you're not a great photographer, you didn't have the right gear. It's generally that you didn't know how to go find the people who had a big enough checkbook to make your business profitable. And there are a lot of people out there who would love for you to work cheap or free, but you're not going to put together a lifestyle around that. It's not going to work. Yeah. And it's important to be able to learn when to walk away because there's oh, always going to be someone who's going to walk you to work for cheap or walk you you know, want you to work for less than you probably is deserve or fair. But, you know, if, if you're living in fear and saying, okay, I, I, I gotta take this job because otherwise I won't be able to make my rent or my car payment. Right. Uh, it puts you at such a severe disadvantage. It's really hard to come back from that. It's enormously hard. If you're, if you're doing a business and you're coming from a place of fear, you should already just close the doors, you know, or you should find a second job that's, steady and stable and you can do it all the time um, because in every negotiation you participate in you're going to screw yourself and you're going to screw the profession of photography because you're going to feel like you need to just about give it away uh, if you're coming from a place of fear we had this big downturn that happened to us right okay and a lot of photographers were hit hard a lot of them are no longer in the business yep. and that's a perfect time to just be in fear because clients are drying up. Uh, if you're, especially if you're commercial photography, they're not, they either weren't spending the money or right. they weren't spending as much as they used to. And all of a sudden there was these other photographers that were coming in that were, you know, saying, Hey, I'll do it for less. You're still around. You're still doing it. So how did you sort of deal with the fact that, all right, it's, um, things are drying up for me, but I still want to be in this business, but you know, you can't help but feel that, oh, how am I going to come through this? So what, what were some of the choices that you made to ensure that you were, you'd be able to get through this and still be able to, to thrive and take care of your family and still, and still be able to sleep at night? Well, the first thing you need to know is that if you're a working photographer and you're in your 40s or 50s, you should have at least a year of working capital in the bank. I don't mean your retirement account or you know, your rainy day account or whatever, you should have a year of working capital in the bank. You should be able to go 12 months without seeing a job and still be able to survive. And that's something that people pounded into me early on in this business. So that's the first step. The second thing, when the banks collapsed in 2008, I immediately came back to the studio. Uh, other people were not as... I guess, quick to be fearful about the economy. But I came back to the studio and I canceled the fax line and I canceled the second studio line. I canceled cable. No cable in our house. Hasn't been since 2008. Most people are paying $120, $150 a month on cable bill. Paid off the cars. Anything that was a recurring monthly charge, I got rid of. And then I realized that the bulk of photography that was going to go away was the the bottom of the pyramid, the bread and butter stuff, the stuff that people could go and shoot themselves with a cheap digital camera if they didn't want to hire a photographer. So I stopped concentrating on marketing to any of the foundational client stuff and focused like a laser on the high end because companies still needed to have a presence and they were only going to spend the money on high end stuff that they couldn't do themselves. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. So I wanted to look at the top of the market, and I, I had the opportunity at the time to write books for a publisher called Amherst Media. Uh, we wrote the first book in 2007, 
It came out spring of 2007. It was very, very popular. Um, and we made good money on the book. Uh, the publisher came back and said, we'd like you to do three or four more titles. So in the midst of that, that fear fest of 2008, 2009, I was knuckling down and knocking out books, which also kept me working as a photographer because every book has 200 or 250 illustrations in it. So I had this thing to channel to. But really, I made a conscious effort to negotiate hard and not give away the farm. Uh, if one of my regular clients came back to me and said, now, look, I know we've done this for $5,000 before. Is there any way for you to do it half price? I would say, no, I'm really sorry. That's what it takes to do that job. I realize times are tough. You know, maybe we could do it like this for $4,000, but I can't do it for half price. Mm -hmm. And they might say, well, I need to find somebody who can. And I would make my pitch that, you know, we've done this before. We know how it's done. We're going to save a lot of time and pre-plan, et cetera, et cetera. If they didn't go for it, they didn't go for it. But those clients have come back now that we're recovered and they're not expecting to get a discount because they didn't get one when things were bleak. So why would I give them a discount now <laughs> when things are better, you know? So we bit the bullet hard around here. I mean, you know, anything that uh, was an expenditure for my kid, you know, new track shoes or, you know, an out-of-town trip for school or something like that, we sure ponied up and did it. No yeah. problem. And, and you make an excellent point in saying that even if they went to that less expensive photographer, right? when they could afford to, they didn't go back to him and say, well, we can get this thing for cheaper. Oh, gosh, no. In fact, uh, I, I have a story that happened this week, this, this last week. Uh, there's a law firm in town, and I know two of the partners. And they had a website done a couple of years ago, and the pictures were atrocious. It was a, a low-budget web designer talked them into using the web designer's photographer and the photographer didn't light and didn't really know how to use a tripod. So mm. everything was a little blurry and a little bad. And then uh, as the economy started to recover, they went through a second round of photography and they liked that even less. And finally they came back kind of um, sheepishly and said, so, uh, how much are you going to charge us for this? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it's going to be what it's always been. You know, it, we've got a day of shooting here. It's 2500 bucks. You know, you're going to buy these rights packages. If you want to reuse them for your LinkedIn pages, it's this much. And they were like, gulp. And then we did the first couple of shots, and they went, yeah, that's what we want to see on our website. That's the image that we want to convey to our clients. That's how they look, you know, successful. And I think the thing that we've been telling clients is the photograph is your foot in the door. It's the first impression that everyone sees of your company. Whether you're IBM and Dell or you're an ice cream shop, when they go to your website, that's generally most people's very first impression of your company. If you have a photograph that looks like it came out of your high school scrapbook or your high school yearbook, what does that connote about your business? Yeah. What does that say about your business? It says we're too cheap to have our photographs done, or we're too cheap to have our photographs done well. But you should use us anyway. Maybe we're better at other stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think for, if it's so important for photographers to have an understanding, they're not just selling a product. They're providing a service. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, photographers, yeah, I made the point uh, a while ago that we all kind of grew up middle class and we didn't really talk about money, et cetera. So, photographers tend to look at finances for shoots the way they look at their personal finances. So, maybe a $2,500 day rate seems ridiculous for an individual to pay, right? But if you couch it in terms of the value that the photography will add to a corporation's advertising campaign, actually, we're way undercharging. Mm -hmm. And the example I use is if IBM does a worldwide campaign for a product, a program, or a software, they might spend $100 million to run that campaign, to buy the media, to put it together with their ad agency, et cetera, et cetera. They're not looking to save money on the photography because they know that the photography, in many cases, is 80% of the ad. If the photography doesn't hook the person, they haven't just wasted 
5000 or $10,000 on photography, they've wasted $100 million. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it that way, we're providing significant value for those customers. When they get the photograph, it's an integral piece of a bigger machine. And without our piece in the machine, the machine doesn't work. So if, if you want to make a good statement to a client, it's like, no, 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 this is not piecemeal work. It's not by the hour. We're providing this, this art or this vision that's going to become a fundamental part of your marketing. And it pushes everything else in front of it. And people go, oh, I never thought about it that way. I said, well, as an individual, you probably never had $100 million to spend on one of your own personal projects, right? <laughs> and they go, yeah, well, of course not. And I'm like, but IBM does have $100 million to spend on their project. And if the key photograph's not right, the rest of the project's not right. Yeah. And they look at me and they go, oh, I never thought of it that way before. But it's a reality. And, and part of what a reputation buys an ad agency when they go and look for a photographer is they have a reasonable expectation that you're not going to make them look bad in front of the client, so they'll get invited back as well. So you're there as their ambassador. Do they want a guy walking in a pair of cargo shorts and, you know, whatever the latest camera is and, ah, I do HDR and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> or do they want somebody who's got, you know, a reputation, some focus, some experience, and knows how to do the thing that they need them to do right now? You know, that, that's a big difference. You came to my attention as a result of your blog that you've been doing for, for a number of years. Thanks. And I'm, I'm wondering why... Why do the blog? Because <laughs> as you said plenty of times on your blog, uh, you know, it's, it takes time and yeah. there can be moments of frustration, especially considering some of the things people have posted there in the past. <laughs> why do you do it? And why do you think it sort of served you not only in terms of your business, but what you do just in general as an artist? Well, my goal in life was to become a writer, not a photographer or an electrical engineer. So in one sense, it's a venue for my writing. But when I sat down in 2008 and started a very rudimentary blog, my thought was, hey, I've got this book on photography. It's going to appeal to photographers. My publisher does a decent job rolling the book out, but they've got 250, 260 books. They don't have time to lavish marketing on my book, right? So I can either let the book sit there on its own or I can develop a vehicle and every week or so flog the book. So my first impulse in doing the, uh, in doing the blog was to sell more books. And as I wrote more books, that kind of became ingrained in part of the blog. So every time I remember it, which is maybe every 10 days or so, you'll see a blog and it'll have all kinds of links to my five books to Amazon. And if you click through and buy one, I'll be happy because I've got a royalty from the uh, publisher. And then I'll also get an affiliate um, piece of money from Amazon. It doesn't cost my readers anything. So it was a win-win in that situation. But having an active blog like that's part of the marketing. And what it's done over time is introduced me to lots of very, very interesting people. You know, you're a perfect example. Would I have ever been able to sit down and talk to you if I didn't have the presence of the blog? Would I have been able to spend an afternoon with Elliot Erwitt if I didn't have the blog? Uh, I called up Sylvia Plashi in New York last week to interview her for the blog. She's coming to Austin to speak. But somebody gave me Sylvia's phone number and said, oh, if you want to interview her, here you go. Well, I think her work in the Village Voice and the New Yorker is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, her son is Adrian Brody, the actor. Um, so it's an exciting person to interview. Uh, would I have had that opportunity without the blog? So at the back of my mind, I probably shouldn't even say this, but I think I've said it on the blog before. I started writing a novel with a protagonist who was a photographer in 2001. I'm just about finished with it. I think that having... Uh, between 25,000 and 35,000 daily readers is a good starter market for a novel about a photographer. What do you think? Absolutely. <laughs> so for that reason alone, I'm going to keep the blog alive. <laughs> but, you know, I've made a number of really good friends through the blog. 
uh, people locally and people across the country that I count as friends. I went to Boston with my kid uh, two weeks ago to look at colleges, and I talked about going to Boston on the blog, and um, Greg Hines, who's the photo director for the Museum Museum of Fine Art in Boston, got in touch with me and said, hey, come to the museum. Come see how we do all this uh, photo documentation of the artwork. Come have a private tour. My wife's one of the curators. Come look at the, uh, at the collection. And I had a, a platinum level tour of that museum with my family that was something the general public doesn't get. Oh, that's awesome. And that was really cool. I loved that. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, and I have to limit myself to one. Just one. Yeah. It's kind of tough. There's a a guy here in Austin, and I've met photographers all over the place. I'm pretty conversant with who's out there. But there's a guy in Austin named Wyatt McSpadden. And I met Wyatt when I was running the ad agency. He came in to show me a book. And he lived in Amarillo, Texas at the time. And he was the ultimate good old boy intellectual. I mean, he had the, act, the Texas accent, the horrible jokes, the whole nine yards. But he had a keen intellect and great taste in music as well. And Turned out he's the funniest photographer I ever met, but I've fallen in love with his portrait work, with the editorial style stuff that he's done over the years for Texas Monthly and some of the other bigger magazines on the East Coast. But he has an incredible sense of humor, and his work is absolutely stunning. And so he's the perfect combination of the guy you send in to photograph a Michael Dell or a President Clinton or a George Bush, because he'll have them eating out of his hand in the first 15 minutes. Mm. No one ever says to this guy, okay, you've got five minutes with the CEO. The CEO says, I want to spend more time with this guy. He's hilarious. He's fun. And uh, I went on a job with him once. and Man, he has what I would call a fluid understanding of making a picture. There's no second in there where he has to go to some mental owner's manual and try to figure something out. It's just fluid. Well, I look forward to checking out his work. Oh, he's, he's amazing. I'll, I'll put a link up on our blog tomorrow. Uh, so where can people go to find out more about everything that you do? Well, basically, you know, there's a generic website, kirktuck.com. Um, but I'm real preferential to the blog. I think the blog is great. The Visual Science Lab is the name of it. And, um, you know, I would love for that to really be my website because I think clients would get, you know, a real view of what I'm like from reading that site. So that, that's pretty much the bulk of it. Well, Kirk, thank you for appearing on the show. It was really, I really had fun talking to you. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Thanks for the honor. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.